Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let's pray for the message uh, together this morning. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together to worship your name, to sing of um, just our delight in you and to make much of your name. And this last song we sang, Jesus, we love you, um, our hearts adore you, and, and I pray as we come into this new sermon series, Lord Jesus, that, that you would ignite in our heart a deeper passion for your name and for who you are. I pray that we would receive your love so that we might love you in return. I pray that we would receive your love so we can love each other as you have loved us. And so I pray that as we go through this series, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would, you would fill our hearts with the affection of the Father, that we would know that we are loved and that we would then love in return. And so I pray that you would deepen our understanding of love through this series. Uh, understanding your love for us and deepening our heart's affection for you and then our heart's affection for others. And so this isn't something we can manufacture, so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would, you would continue to pour the love of the Father into our hearts, that we would understand this love at a deeper level. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. I'm going to... Uh, put up on the screen, one of, a, one of the most jarring images that I think I've come across on the internet. This is a picture of uh, the Ku Klux Klan gathered at a church in Portland, Oregon, underneath the banner, Jesus Saves. And uh, the reason it's so jarring to me is you see that these are men who promote violence against black people, against Jewish people, against Catholics, against immigrants, gathering together. Uh, they actually did this. They gathered together to pray together, to worship together, to read scripture together. And what maybe sometimes people don't realize is that the Ku Klux Klan considered themselves to be a Christian organization, sort of like a parachurch organization, like Campus Crusade or something. I'm not saying Campus Crusade is the KKK. I'm just saying that's how they thought of themselves. Now, in the early days of the Ku Klux Klan, in order to join the Klan, you had to be a Christian of good standing in your local church. That meant many of the high-ranking members of the Ku Klux Klan were deacons, pastors, church elders. And the second imperial wizard of the KKK said this in one of his pamphlets. He said, As the star of Bethlehem guided the wise men to Christ, so it is that the Klan is expected to guide men to the right life under Christ's banner. Which kind of sounds like a great tagline for a men's ministry. So... The thing that's kind of confusing to me, right, maybe it's confusing to you, is you wonder how do men who seem to be sincere in their faith, sincere in their reading and application of scripture, how do they allow themselves to praise Jesus in one breath and then destroy black people and immigrants and different religions in the next? They are, as Paul warned Timothy, men who have the form of godliness but deny its power. These are people who are like the ancient Israelites and, and even like the Pharisees. They're told by God, these people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. You see that told to the ancient Israelites in Isaiah 29, and you see Jesus saying the same thing to the Pharisees in Matthew 15. Hey, you do all the, the performative worship, but your hearts are far from me. 
So the clan gathers together to pray and read scripture and then they go out and burn crosses. How do you do that? They worship God, but their hearts are far from him. But the question that I ask myself is how do Christians get themselves into a place like this? Where they claim to love God and to serve God, yet would see no problem sending fire to a black-owned business or chasing black people out of town or even engaging in murder all under the banner of the Christian faith. How do, you, how do you get such a twisted, warped version of Christianity? And I'd put forth that what you're seeing there is a group of Christians who've embraced a worship of idols in addition to their worship of God. They didn't reject the worship of God. They just started worshiping idols along with their worship of God. So if you look at the Ku Klux Klan publications, you'll see that the main focus of their worship was their country. They believed that America was a special nation, that America was special in the eyes of God, but that only white Christians could properly govern the nation. They believed that other races or religions would destroy America. So as much as racism was at the heart of, of KKK, that was the root cause of it, there was also the idolization of the nation of America that was tied with their racism. They would do whatever it took to protect America from what they believed were threats to its success and supremacy, and because they worshipped the idol of nationalism mixed with racism, it twisted their faith into something incredibly disgusting and violent. They would sincerely say, we are doing God's will here. Because God has blessed the nation of America, and we are America's defenders. So we're simply doing God's will. That's what happens when you mix an idol with your faith, and you, you worship at the same time syncretistically. And I think this is why Jesus tells us, affirms with the Pharisees and with other people, that the greatest commandment, do you remember this? Jesus says it in two different places. One time he agrees with somebody that this is the greatest commandment. Another time he says it himself when he's being questioned. He says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and in other places all our strength. And I think he says you need to love God with all your heart because our hearts are often divided in its love for God and in affection for God and his ways. And so today I just want to dig a little bit deeper just into that first one, love God with all our heart. Because the human heart is, apart from God's presence, it's according to scripture, our heart is deceitful and wicked. Our hearts consistently pull us away from the God whom we say we love and into sinful desires and passions. Now, for most of us, you know, our, our desires aren't going to be pulling us into the KKK, but maybe I can give you a more contemporary example of, of kind of this divided loyalty of our heart, to the divided affection of our heart. You know, it might be something like, I sincerely love God, but it's just not practical to love my enemies. I'm never going to get ahead in the business world if I love everybody and treat everybody well. I've got to, you know, you've got to be a little bit cutthroat, and you can justify that to yourself. Or you might say, you know, I sincerely love God, but my money and my time are really my own to do with as I please. Or I sincerely love God, but these sexual ethics of the Christian church are outdated, and I'm, I'm just going to do what I think is best for me. And so throughout Scripture, we see the duality of the human heart, this divided nature of our heart's affection. We almost never walk away from God entirely. We love God, but we also love money. We love God, but we pursue sexual pleasure outside God's design of marriage. We love God, but we're unwilling to follow him outside the comfortable life we've built for ourselves. Again, I go back to that KKK gathering of, of Christ followers. You know, how can a Christian claim to love God, but then hate certain people and, and certain religions? And it's that duality of the heart. It's the division of the heart's affection. It's cognitive dissonance of epic proportions. 
And if we refuse to submit ourselves to the rule and the will of God, we remain blind to the idols in our own hearts that divide our hearts' loyalty and affection. If you read the Old Testament, you'll notice that one of the biggest things going on in in ancient Israel is that they keep on worshiping false gods and worshiping idols. But I think it's important to note here because sometimes I think we have the idea that they totally abandoned their worship of God to worship another god. Sometimes that happened. But that's actually not what was usually happening. Usually what was happening is they still worshipped God, they still worshipped Yahweh in the ways that they always did, they just worshipped other gods in addition. That's why God's accusing them of adultery. It's like, yeah, you come to the temple, and then you go to the Asherah pole. How do you worship me here and then go to another God here? They don't just walk away from God, they just add to their worship. God is good, but so is So is the Asherah pole. I like both of them, and they try and do both at the same time. Their hearts are divided in their affection. And so I can see that divided heart in my own life, and and you can see it probably in the lives of people you know. Right? Again, like I said, we try to love both God and money. We try to do whatever we want with our lives and still say our lives are surrendered to Jesus. We try to have our idols and our worship of God in the same heart, but that doesn't work. Jesus is adamant that following him requires death to self daily. A daily denial of myself and a commitment to follow him, even though it might cost me things that my heart desires. Things like comfort, wealth, power, or sexual satisfaction. For all of us, the instruction is to make sure that our hearts remain steadfast in the Lord. That we, as Jesus would tell us, would love God with all of our heart. And so we want to make sure that our hearts are not divided in its affection, but firmly rooted in love for God and love for others. Because that's what makes us fully human. See, one of the things I think we forget is we think, oh, God's just making us love him. Like it's some sort of like legalistic command. I'm like, no, when we give all of ourselves to God, we become exactly who God is trying to create us to be. That's the full flourishing of the human life. Remember when Jesus said that I have come so that you might have life, that you might have abundant life? And yet he says, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to follow me every day. And it's like, yeah, because Jesus leads us into the abundant life. It's not burdensome when we understand that what what this means is that we get to live the full human life the way it was meant to be. But there's these blockages to loving God with all our heart. And the main blockage to loving God with all our hearts is that heart's tendency to, to set up idols in its, in its life. So this tendency to want to love God but also desire these other things almost more than God or at the same level as God. King David knew of the heart's tendency to be divided in its devotion. So he prays this in Psalm 89. He says, teach me, Psalm 86, he says, teach me your way, Lord, that I might rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Because he knows that there's this tendency to be divided in the affection. Like I said, it's not that we abandon our worship of God. It's that we are like the ancient Israelites, divided in our heart's affections. We love God, but we also really like the things of this world. And the apostle John wardens the, the believers about this. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Anything that we love more than God 
or desire more than God is an idol that divides our heart's loyalty and affection. There's an example of, of how we kind of walk in this divided loyalty. I think it's really easy for all of us to do this. And there's an example from Scripture in, in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 14. There's these elders of Israel, these leaders of Israel. And they want to make a decision, and so they decide that they want to go to the prophet Ezekiel to hear a message from the Lord, which sounds like a really godly, faithful thing to do, right? The elders of Israel are going to God's prophet to hear a word from the Lord. Awesome. That's exactly what they should be doing. That's perfect. But here's what happens. As the men come up, the Lord speaks to Ezekiel, and the Lord says, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? In other words, he's saying, forget it. Like, as long as these people have idols in their hearts, I'm not going to lead them. Instead of prophecy, here's what I have to say to them. Repent and turn from your idols. And I just think it's so interesting that these men are trying to do exactly what God wants of them. Like, we're going to go talk to God. We're going to hear from God to do what God wants us to do. And God's going, yeah, but you've got so many idols in your heart. There's so many things that you desire more than me that it's almost useless to give you my word. It's just going to get twisted. You're not going to understand what I'm saying to you because there's these idols that you're carrying. John Tyson writes this, he says, as we approach God, his primary concern is the devotion of our hearts, not our performance out of duty. It's incredibly easy to have something take over our hearts, to make its way into first place without our even knowing it. We can keep up our involvement in small groups, attend church faithfully, give generously, even love sacrificially, while holding something other than God is sacred in our hearts. That's why God always looks first at our hearts rather than our religious habits. And again, I go back to the Ku Klux Klan there. They had to be members of good standing in their churches, right? So that meant they went to church every Sunday. They probably taught Sunday school. Some of them were pastors and taught the word. They prayed together. They looked, their religious duty was second to none. They were men of good standing in their churches. Yet their heart was divided in this loyalty. So I want to make it more personal, and maybe you can track this with me. Like, for myself... I tend to idolize having a life of ease, comfort, and luxury. And I can tell that I'm chasing after the idol of comfort when I start looking for ways to escape the call to ministry. When I begin saying things like this, I just want to make some decent money and enjoy my life and my family. There's actually nothing wrong with that desire, right? There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, I just want to make some good money and enjoy my life and enjoy my family. There's nothing sinful about that. There's nothing wrong with that. But for myself... For me personally, it's a bent of mine to run from God's purposes for me and live life on my own terms. Even though like, that desire to you know, enjoy my life and enjoy my family is not a sinful desire, it's an idol that I can sometimes try- worship. And I think it's important to remember that sometimes the idols of our hearts are good things that we turn into God things. That's a Timothy Keller thing. It's a good thing, but we make it an ultimate thing. It's a good thing, but we're unwilling to let it go if God says, hey, I've got a different direction for you. And so for me, the desire to leave ministry behind and just live my life is the idol of self rising up. It's me saying, I can do life better on my own terms. And so I need to surrender myself again, deny myself again to the life that Jesus has promised me. And it's not always the life that my fleshly heart desires. It's not always an easy life, but it is good. It is true, it is beautiful, 
and it is filled with spiritual life and peace. I think that's something that we sometimes forget is that we have these things that we want to accomplish, that we want to do. We want to live life on our own terms and we can see how great it's going to be. But God's saying, hey, I've got this other plan for you. It's good, it's true, it's beautiful and it's filled with spiritual life and peace. And if you would trust me in this, your heart is going to be much more settled. You're going to be human the way you were always meant to be human. But if you go your own way, guaranteed down the road somewhere, you're not going to have the spiritual life and peace that Jesus has promised us. And so I think we always live in this tension. That life in the spirit almost always goes against the desires of our flesh. And we live in that tension. Do we walk in the spirit or do we gratify the flesh? Galatians 5 is a famous passage. Paul says, I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so you are not to do whatever you want. There's this tension. We're allowed to follow the way of the flesh but we're invited to follow the way of the spirit. And so as we live in this fallen world, there's always this battle in the heart Do we want to follow the way of the world, the flesh, and the devil, or do we want to follow the ways of the kingdom of God? And only by daily submitting ourselves to the leading of the Holy Spirit can we walk free from the ways of the world and have hearts that are fully devoted to the person and work of Jesus. One of the key elements in having a heart that's undivided in its affection for God is is to have hearts that are emptied of the idols that lurk within. We empty ourselves of us so that we can be filled with the presence of God. This doesn't mean you lose your personhood. This doesn't mean you lose your unique personality or your identity. What it means is God takes all of what makes you you and he makes it true, good, and beautiful in him. He makes you exactly the way you were meant to be. And so if we want to be filled, we first have to empty ourselves of all those things that actually distract us from living the good, true, and beautiful life. I think we can forget sometimes that in this life, our goal is that we're seeking to be made more like Jesus each and every day. Something that is so profound to me is that Jesus is called the second Adam. Jesus shows us exactly what it is to be human. He shows us exactly what it is like to live the fully fulfilled life in God. And so our goal is to try and be made more like Jesus every day by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. This is what we call, theological term, is sanctification. To be made more like Jesus. There's a theologian I I really like, her name is Marlena Graves, and she writes that she was wrestling with God over a lot of difficulties that she'd gone through in life, and, and she just wasn't making any headwind, was feeling really defeated, and so she decided to wait in silence, and she received this word from the Lord. He said, only when you are empty can you be made full. And secondly, my strength is made perfect in weakness. She writes, only recently have I begun to awaken to the depths of this word to me. Its particularities and to the knowledge that being emptied in order for God to fill me is the pathway to deeper communion with him. As we empty ourselves of of the desires that, that pull us away from God, as we empty ourselves of the idols that we have clung to, We have deeper communion with God. And then she says this, God is intent on making me more real, a less distorted image of him. As I become more like him, I become more human. In turn, I will love him and others with a deeper love. I will become dependent on God to energize me with his life. 
If I want to be full, open to receiving abundant grace, more human, selfless, first I must be emptied. He must increase, I must decrease. In this posture of willingly emptying ourselves, we're just following the example that Jesus set, that Paul tells us about in Philippians 2, right? Have this mind among yourselves, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of a man, being found in human form, he humbled himself further, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, to live the abundant life, there's a, there's a principle of emptying ourselves so that we may be filled with God's presence and power. And I notice that Jesus did not cling to his rights. He repeatedly gave his rights up. His posture was, not my will, but yours be done. And similarly, each day, God asks us to relinquish our rights in favor of his will. That his will and our will would become one. No division in our heart's affection, but a loving of God with all our heart. And I think sometimes what happens is we kind of demand our rights, right? I, I demand comfort and luxury and this and that. And God's going, you have, lay down your rights and receive my will. Follow my will. I want us to recognize that emptying ourselves is a process. It's not done in an instant, but it's accomplished over a lifetime. Slowly and surely, if we keep our eyes on Jesus and the things of heaven, the Holy Spirit will strengthen us and direct us to renounce our self-will, empty ourselves of godless desires so that we might be filled with God's presence and life. It's taking the words of Paul in Galatians to heart when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's understanding that, hey, I want Jesus to take over my life. Not so that I can become a mindless clone, but so that he can bring out all the goodness in me and help strip away all the deceitful evil in me. Marlena Graves writes this. She says, Notice that Paul points out that Jesus gave or offered himself up for Paul out of love. And that's what we're talking about here. It's a life characterized by offering ourselves out of love for God, others, and creation. We surrender to God so that he might live in and through us. Our lives become a love offering, plain and simple. But not so simple. Because sometimes we don't want to do what God calls us to do. We fear the heavy toll it will take on us. Life already has run us ragged sometimes. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're far more used to being self-serving instead of self-giving. We're inclined to choose ourselves first over God. We prefer to give God and others orders instead of taking them. And moreover, we worry that if we give of ourselves, it won't get us anywhere in the church or in the world. And it probably won't. That's the counterintuitive thing about the gospel. It doesn't promise that you're going to succeed in life and ministry and business. It promises that you've already been given everything. You've been given the gift of eternal life. You've been given the presence of Jesus himself. But it also means you turn the other cheek. It means you humble yourself. It means you look to others' needs ahead of your own. That's the cruciform life. So hearing the call to renounce our wills in each new circumstance so God's will can be done in and through every part of us is the call to selflessness. It's not a one-time deal, it's a daily thing, a daily laying down of, of my rights to follow God's will for me. Because I trust that my Heavenly Father, who is love, who's, who says, I am your Father, is good. 
and his will for me is good. Jesus told his followers this, right? He said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. So there's this daily call to take up our cross. And again, I I go, what does that phrase mean, take up your cross? Well, you know, obviously in the context of that day, anyone who's carrying a cross is carrying it to the place of execution. So when he says carry your cross, he's not saying, oh, carry your burdens or anything like that. He's saying, yeah, you're going to come and die. Every day you die to yourself so you can follow me. And so that means we deny ourselves. We die to self daily. When we die to self, we're emptying ourselves. We're not clinging to what we believe are our rights or our desires. We're submitting them, emptying our heart of its idols so that Jesus can lead us to true and abundant life in him. And I just want to end the sermon today by talking about ways in which we can break free of idolatry and focus our heart's attention on God. Because the thing is, idols are sneaky. And sometimes we have idols in our hearts and we don't even really realize that we have them. Again, Ku Klux Klan. If you would be like, hey, I think what you're doing is bad, they'd be like, no, this is God's will. Right? There's an idolatry that is so overtaken them that they don't even see it. They don't even recognize the problem. So how do we get to a place where we can recognize any idols that are kind of lingering in our heart? I think there's two practices that are beneficial that help us receive the fullness of God's presence so we can love God with all our heart. And I think both of these practices need to be under the direction and control of the Holy Spirit. We can't know ourselves apart from the leading of the Holy Spirit. And we can't get very far in the Christian life by just trying harder. We surrender ourselves so the Holy Spirit can do the work that we can't do. So anytime I give practices for us to do as a church, I always want to be sure that we're just aware that human effort alone almost never accomplishes anything. What we're really asking for is We're asking that the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, will meet us in these places to take us deeper and take us further than we ever imagined. And so the first practice that I think is important for us to to practice fairly regularly is just a simple heart check. Asking ourselves and asking of the Holy Spirit, am I being obedient to the teachings of Jesus? Because Jesus is really clear that if we love him, we'll obey him. He says this, if you love me, keep my commands. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So obedience to the commands of God and to the commands of the Father are a part of knowing that we love God. Now, I just want to pause here and just make an aside that our obedience to God's way is motivated not out of fear but out of love. The Apostle John says that perfect love casts out fear. And Jesus obeyed the Father in his earthly life, not because he feared the Father, but because he loved the Father. And so we're obedient in that same way. I'm not going to list all the ways in which our heart could be disobedient, but I would invite you to take some time on your own this week to go through the teachings of Jesus and ask the Holy Spirit to point out any areas of disobedience in your life. Remembering that God is for you and not against you. He's not convicting us of sin to condemn us, but convicting us so that we can have a more abundant life in him. So I'm just going to give you a few ideas or places in lives where we tend to not obey Jesus and where maybe we need to just do a, hey, Jesus, I, haven't, I need to resubmit myself here. And so you can ask the Holy Spirit, am I being obedient in these areas? Am I loving my neighbors? Am I loving my enemies? Am I obedient in how I use my money? Am I obedient in caring for the poor, the weak, the widowed, the sick? Am I obedient in hospitality? 
Am I obedient in sharing the good news of Jesus? This isn't an exhaustive list, but it's just to get you started. You just ask Jesus, what parts of my life do I need to surrender? And those questions always lead to good fruit produced. When you actually take time to ask Jesus, to ask by the Holy Spirit, what parts of my life do I still need to surrender? There's always good fruit that comes out of that. I'll give you an example. Do you know Teen Challenge? the organization that helps uh, youth and young adults come out of drug addiction. Well, Dave Wilkerson started Teen Challenge. And he, um, the way it all started is such an interesting story. Dave left his rural church and started working with gang members and drug addicts in New York City because he felt the Lord tell him to get rid of his TV. He was in prayer one time in the new year, and the Lord said, I want you to give up your TV, and instead of watching the late show, I want you to pray for that hour. And so a few months after David got rid of his TV, the Lord directed him to the arrest of five gang members in New York, and that started his entire journey ministering to gang members and drug addicts. If he hadn't given up his TV, I have a feeling that this this might never have come together. It's not that TV is sinful, it's not that TV is wrong, it's that for Dave Wilkerson at that moment in time, asking the Lord, what do I need to give up, led to amazing fruit that's still going on today. So TV is not the sinful thing, but each one of us might have things in our heart which are dividing our heart's affection and attention. So just pay attention to the whispers of the Spirit to lay down the things which are distracting us or things which have become idols of affection in our hearts. Obedience to Jesus always leads to good fruit in our lives, even if it sounds weird. Like if I was to say to you, oh yeah, I'm giving up TV for a year, you'd be like, well, either that's weird or what, you're trying to brag about it, right? So I probably wouldn't say anything about it if the Lord led me to that. But there might be something in your life that the Lord is saying, you know what, this has become a distraction for you. This has become an idol in your life that's, that's pulling your eyes away from me. So just pay attention to that this week. The next practice that I think is important in capturing our heart's affection is the practice of worship. Right? Obviously, if we're divided in our heart's affection for God, that means there's something else in our life that we're worshiping. The Apostle John ends his first letter with this statement, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And John was obviously meaning the literal idols, the false gods and goddesses that were all around them. But we also become aware of the idols of money and sex and power and intelligence that we wrestle with today. So how do we keep ourselves free from idols in a world that's actually full of idolatry? Look at our world. Look at what it tells us to worship. All of those things. We chase after all of these things. So how do we keep ourselves from idols in a world that's full of idolatry? I'm going to use John Tyson here because he says the best way to defeat idol worship is regular worship of God in community. It's coming together into this church, which is a very counterintuitive, countercultural thing to do now, to wake up early on a Sunday morning, it's still dark out, the moon was up when I came in, and, and to come and worship together is actually one of the ways to protect ourselves from idols. He writes this, he says, church matters because our Western culture is a seductive environment with many cultural idols working on our affections and practices, changing our habits and shaping our minds. The church exists as a counterformative community to confront our idolatry. We go to church to be transformed into the image of Jesus. I think this is true because we are surrounded in our culture by thousands of voices telling us we need more money, more political power, more intelligence, more life experience, whatever it is. That list can go on and on. And so we need to have a space where we can shut out the noise of the culture and the world for a time and have our hearts renewed by worshiping the only being worthy of being worshiped, to be reminded of the greatness and glory of God. And I so appreciated the the music portion of our worship this morning because it was pulling our eyes and our hearts to the greatness and the glory of Jesus and the Father and of the work of the Holy Spirit. And I thought, this is so good to be reminded of how great our God is. 
Philip Yancey says that church primarily exists to worship God, and if it fails in that, it fails. The goal of the church is to get worshipers in touch with God. It's in the presence of God. It's in the space where our hearts and minds are captivated by God's glory, by his truth, by his grace. That's where we see the idols of our heart for what they are, empty, meaningless lies which distract us from the beauty of God. Right? It's in church where you're going to be convicted that maybe I've been chasing the idol of money. It's in church where you're going to be convicted that maybe I've been chasing the idol of building my career at the expense of loving my neighbors. And we realize that that thing we are chasing is not as beautiful as God. It's not as good as God. John Tyson says that God is at war for the love of your heart. And he says God's not actually interested in modifying our behavior. He wants our hearts. Until we can see idolatry as spiritual adultery, we'll be prone to dismiss it. But if we get our hearts right, everything else will follow. And that's true because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And if our hearts are undivided in the love for God, then everything else follows. So when we gather together in church to pray and to sing and to read scripture and to be taught, we worship the only being in the universe worthy of being worshipped. And this worship is powerful. This worship is formative. Being in the presence where, where we are directing our minds and hearts' attention to the Father, the creator of all things, to our Savior, to the, to the Holy Spirit, it's formative. Even if you don't feel like it's formative, it's formative. John Tyson says this, I'm going to end with his quote. He says, whenever the church gathers and offers its collective heart and worship, powerful things can happen. The Father is seen for who he is and the soul is stirred. Christ is seen in ascended glory and the heart rejoices. The spirit is poured out, resulting in our transformation and our empowerment to seek God more. He says, when you gather in Jesus' name, no matter how large or small the assembly, you are bearing witness before the powers that you cannot be bought. Your heart will remain steadfast, your resistance potent, your vision glorious. Repentance and worship become your rhythm. Idols are resisted and relocated. Tiny outposts of worship can defy principalities, reconcile communities, and transform history. God is at war for the love of your heart. May your worship resist idolatry. That's what church is for, is to remind us that we are not of the world. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. And that's what church reminds us of. It gives us a, a, a new community, a different way of living and being that is vastly different from the world around us. So I'm going to invite Mike up to lead us in communion. Um, I think the Eucharist is one of the most powerful places of resistance to say, to whom do I belong? And Mike's going to lead us in that.